It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. On today's episode, Anush, Stephen, and I discussed Labour Conference, and you ask us, what are you doing in preparation for a second lockdown? So, happy Labour Conference, all. Labour Connected, the virtual Labour Conference, started with some fringe events on Saturday and continued in earnest yesterday and Monday, the day of recording, and it will conclude tomorrow with the leader's keynote speech, Keir Starmer. And we've all been on panels and chairing panels and watching the speeches and so on. So this is a kind of probably a good point, while Stephen, you're also writing the column in the magazine this week on the outlook for Labour, it's maybe a good point to take stock of where the Labour Party is. If we start with you, Stephen, it's sort of silly to ask what the mood is of a virtual conference. What do you think is the key message that this conference is trying to send? The key message that this conference is trying to send is basically the same message that the Labour Party under Keir Starmer has been trying to send pretty consistently, which is we wouldn't do anything bad. We love the country. We're competent. We're quite safe. And so I feel I said that in a much more kind of acidic way than I necessarily was aiming for. I think one of the things I'm finding really impressive about this conference is one, they actually managed to simulate exactly my same kind of feeling of being like slightly rushed, slightly cranky and having too much coffee. And it is actually a really impressive bit of work considering that like the room that they did the speeches from is literally an office, you know, is like literally is just office space within their HQ. But yeah, I, I think basically their message is, and you wrote a very good piece on this today about both what they're trying to do and also some of the potential risks of it with Annalise Dodds' speech is basically they're trying to be like Labour now in a new non-threatening colour. <laughs> Anush, what have your impressions been? We, I think we can go into more detail of, of the, the exact contents of their speeches and the potential pitfalls and, of, and so on after, but what has your impression been of, of it so far from your chairing and, and, and observations? I think I've had a sort of similar impression of it as Stephen has. You know, they've almost ramped up the level of this is how we're going to frame Labour economic policy to try and appeal to as many people in the public as possible. You know, it's it's almost more obvious what they're doing now, particularly from Annalise Dodds' speech that you, you wrote up 
very well today. I know I'm obsessed with this topic, but there's so much uh, work going on out there in the sort of think tanky charity world, particularly those who concentrate on inequality and poverty and tax justice and, and those kind of issues to try and work out how you make these messages that are always so popular in the abstract with the public actually chime with voters in a way that will mean that they might vote in a way to try and make the country a more equal place or try and make tax fairer or try and reduce poverty. And I thought what was really interesting in Annalise Dodds's speech was that she spoke about public spending in the context of waste. And that is what you often see in polling about people's attitudes towards public spending. So people's attitudes towards more public spending are positive. They want more money to be spent on the public sector and they see that that austerity has created problems for public services. But there's always an undercurrent of, I would happily spend more taxes if I knew my taxes weren't going to waste, if I knew that untrustworthy politicians weren't, you know, wasting all of my money and that it was going on things that, that you know, aren't value for money and, and, and aren't accountable and aren't transparent. So Labour has obviously picked up on that. It's pretty much the weakness for the left or the tax justice campaigning left when they're trying to speak to the public about taxes. And it looks like they've got on the front foot for that. So that's a really specific policy based answer. But I think it speaks to a wider wider impetus within the Labour Party to actually do a little bit of what, you know, Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson are supposed to be so good at, which is let's look at the public attitudes for this thing we want to talk about while trying to ensure that our ideology and the brand of our party and, you know, our principles stay intact. That's such an interesting, specific thing to bring up, because I I know that you have, you've done a lot of really interesting reporting on, on all the research that goes into this and how you you frame certain arguments around economic policy to the public and and particularly how you sort of frame a left-wing case that will appeal to the broader public. And so I'm really interested because, as you say, I did write on that speech earlier. I'm really interested that that is one of the big findings from that research that you talk in terms of waste and not wasting things because that was, as you say, the main takeaway from Annalisa Dodds' speech using that framing for the first time. I think actually when you look at the transcript of the speech, which will not be obvious from the way I wrote it up, there was actually a lot of very sort of conventional labour stuff around, you know, how much people are, are really suffering at the moment from the economic crisis and government mistakes around ending the furlough and, you know, and support for, for ordinary people and the problems that they encounter in in their everyday lives and how Labour can support them. But that wasn't really the focus of my piece, and I don't think it will be the focus of much of the conversation around it. Because as you say, the really strikingly new thing from Annalisa Dodds, which we would have never seen from John McDonnell, was framing public spending in terms of waste or money well spent. So she wove this line the whole way through it about the Conservatives being reckless with money and the headline that you will have heard on the radio about her speech and also this morning before she made it, the way it was trailed in the news bulletins was that you know Annalisa Dodds is going to accuse the Conservative government of being cavalier with public spending. When you look at the content of the speech, she was sort of talking about the way there have been lots of contracts given out um, often to people with rather close relationships to the Conservative Party. And then the things that they were commissioned to produce just never materialised or they didn't work. So huge, you know, millions of pounds spent on masks or PPE or other government contracts. 
and those those things were inadequate or didn't materialize in one way or another and then also the job retention bonus which Annalisa Dodds mentioned the figure for it but which has has supposedly spent a huge amount of money just basically paying companies to keep people on in jobs that they would have kept anyway that it's exactly the critique that Stephen made of the policy when it was first announced weeks ago the the big departure from the the more Corbynite line was the thing that makes it really interesting but I just wonder if it's a risk definitely I think that if you accuse the government of being cavalier with public spending without the context of saying, you know, they have given, as Labour would put it, you have given away these cronyistic, flawed contracts that have have produced nothing worthwhile. I think people people understand that. But I think if you accuse a government of being cavalier without really like fleshing out the explanation in every news bulletin, it just sounds like Labour are accusing the government of being too generous which I think is maybe what they'll think if they think, oh, you know, we've had our nice EDOT to help out and we've had the furlough scheme. That's clearly not what Labour means. But I think maybe if you phrase things in terms of waste and not waste, unless people are privy to the detail and they're tuning in for Labour conference, I just wonder if there's if there's just huge potential with that messaging for it to go really badly wrong when Labour wasn't suggesting for a moment that they would reduce public spending. And actually a lot of their message is don't use this opportunity to bring in cuts. But maybe that's going to be lost. What did you think of it, Stephen? So I, I know this shows that I really need to get out more, but I, I'm afraid my immediate thought was, well, John McDonald did talk about wasteful spending, right? That was a large chunk of their argument about the problems with outsourcing, wasn't that it was a waste. My overarching thing, this isn't just an excuse for my laziness, was that ultimately right, it doesn't matter, right? Because no one, no one normal is going to hear anything about this speech because it's going to be completely swallowed by the fact we, we met, yeah, the trailer for lockdown two, electric boogaloo. But I guess, to me at least, right, what I think is interesting about the response to it, right, which is not just among, you know, kind of among like the political class in general, which I am for, for ease of reference, going to, for one time only, dis- describe as a category encompassing every member of the commentariat and everyone who follows politics closely and comments it on Twitter, is they all went, oh, oh, this is a bit austere, isn't it? Um, oh, this is a bit tough. Which I think kind of shows like the tone of this sort of new, now in a more reassuring colour Labour Party, means that when they talk about waste, people cover it in that way, even if it's not necessarily all that much of a departure. I guess I kind of think the problem is not so much right because that ultimately like, the job retention bonus is a waste of money. Giving money to like your mates or like some people who are like going to disrupt COVID is a waste of money. Whether or not you buy the idea that there is a meaningful constraint in terms of what the government can and cannot spend is kind of redundant to the fact that even if you can just give money to your mates to then fail to deliver a service, you probably shouldn't do it. So I kind of, like, you know, I sort of think like ultimately like it's, it is the right argument to make and therefore it's kind of the right place for them to be. And in terms of the fact that all of the voters they lost were economically to the right of the voters they retained, I think it makes sense from that perspective. My underlying question still is that like for it to work, people kind of need to hear it and go, yes, I kind of do believe that you would have done this better. And I think the central problem is that if you look at the poll, people don't believe that Labour would have done it better. And part of that is because Labour has been slow to make big predictions that it itself can be graded on, as it were. In the like, really, in, in the first of those is the one that is about to happen, which is the furlough coming to an end. But unless 
the Labour Party can actually point to a thing and go, we said this was wrong before it became obvious and it was, then it's just like, you know, it's just them being kind of good at commentary and sort of sounding less scary than than Jeremy Corbyn did by the end, which, I mean, sounding less scary than Jeremy Corbyn did to a large chunk of voters in 2019 is progress. But, you know, it's only progress back towards 2017, an election which Labour did still lose. Yeah, and I think I think the big gotcha for them in terms of if they're being challenged on this by journalists or, or by the Conservatives is, well, you know, when we introduced this scheme, you welcomed it, but you said that it wasn't enough money and that we should spend more on it, which is usually the critique, you know, if the government announces an extra lump of money for education or social care. Labour will say, well, this money is welcome, but it, but we need more. This doesn't make up for the number of cuts that we that it has had in, in the X past few years. So probably for a lot of these things that they'll now say is wasteful or wasn't spent properly, there will be some quote that people can point to to say, well, you were on board with it. You wanted us to spend even more. And I think that really could be a vulnerability and does tie in with what Alva was saying, that it sounds a bit like you're saying, well, rather than spending money wastefully, just the act of spending money, more government money is wasteful. So I do think that's a vulnerability. But like you say, I'm not sure how many normal people are actually going to be engaging with this <laughs> with this speech and, and this argument anyway. So it may not necessarily matter. Another thing that I do think is a problem is what people do engage with is their local council and the services that are on offer there. And during the last election, a lot of the stuff that I heard when I was interviewing people around the country was how discontent they were with the way that their council was spending money. Now, it could be very unfair for certain councils because they've been cut so much, but it nevertheless has produced negative views of local government in some areas. And, you know, inevitably, a lot of those areas are are Labour council areas. Yeah, I think that that was really what I meant, that people won't really have watched the speech. And I think the speech as a whole makes sense and the argument is very clear. Like, don't, you know, give give your friends loads of money to not provide masks to the UK during a pandemic. But that potentially that top line, the Labour Party is accusing the government of being cavalier with, with the public purse. Without the explanation has major potential to be misread. And I think, you know, people do listen to the news bulletins, even if they don't. Um follow any more in any more detail like I'm sure on music radio and stuff this morning people will have still had the the brief news update and so I just wonder if that was rather than thinking of the big policy strategy of it which is probably sensible if that was just a small error in terms of getting the top line right because as you say it isn't the first time that the Labour Party has talked about waste in public spending but to make that your top line with no context is maybe a bit risky but I was going to ask a genuine open question to both of you is this a problem of a lack of policy in that there's the separate thing about how late they are to call certain things that if they had been you know calling for the furlough scheme to be extended right from the start they would seem like more on the front foot but there has been some chat about when Labour will put forward any new policies and whether they should be is it reasonable to expect Labour under a new leader to be putting forward detailed policies at this point? Like, should they be? Would that help? Stephen, what do you think? No, policy doesn't matter. That's a slightly glib answer. In the, ultimately, policy matters in opposition because of the like broad story it tells about your like overarching values, as it were, right? 
So policy would help in terms of if there's a, a, a values message they want to send that they're not currently sending. But I mean, as we've seen from the way that like a large chunk of people have like on on both left and right, right? You see it with like, you know, occasionally when like, you know, people on the right would talk about how Jeremy Corbyn was obsessed with culture wars and, you know, like, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. It's like, yes, that's what I think about when I think of uh, the man who famously got in hot water for talking about people who choose to be gay. Really, he was obsessed with culture wars. But because like his tone, yeah, it's one of those things where like, it's, it's really easy to forget them for the average person. Politics really is more of a vibe. So... Policy announcements in opposition, because ultimately when you get there and you suddenly realise, oh, this is actually more complex, or oh, it turns out and the work than that one think tank did for us was slightly impressionistic, so we're going to achieve do the same thing but achieve in a slightly different way. It doesn't matter from that perspective, but it does matter in terms of like you know basically the general vibe that the Labour Party has. And I think what we're seeing in terms of some of the reaction to this conference, both within and without the party is basically the success of the kind of Keir Starmer, I wouldn't do everything bad, I'm very, I'm very solid introduction to himself to voters, is that he can announce something fairly radical, right? Like, so the furlough thing will be, right? Like, Labour's position is literally that it would indefinitely extend this until such a point as, like, this ends, right? Which, I mean, I think is, is actually very sensible, but ultimately, right, if Ed Miliband had, had proposed that in 2015, right, you know, the BBC were doing its whole life, but how will it be funded? And ditto, if Corbyn had done it, everyone would be like, oh, you know, there goes Jeremy Corbyn with his plan for a thousand years of communism. The flip side of that is he announces these things and a large chunk of, of the political commentary to his left kind of goes, oh, there goes conservative old Keir again. So I, I kind of think that, like, policy can fix that problem if you, like, you know, basically, like, broadly, right? If you do something like say, hey guys, I'm going to nationalize broadband, then a large chunk of your policy program gets seen through that lens. But absent of going, hey guys, I'm going to nationalize broadband or some policy of like equivalent wow factor, which is only kind of cursorily in the control of the political party in question, like broadband, for example, probably only mattered as much as it did because the BBC opted to push notification it. So yeah, I guess that's a long, weird way of saying I, I think it both is and isn't about what policies they announce. It just does all come back to, down to the smell that the Labour Party is choosing to give off, which is a kind of like, it's like, you know, that Simpsons episode where like, it's like, you know, where Lisa reads her like non-threatening men, no, non-threatening boys magazine. Like that is Labour's deliberate tactic is to be like <laughs> non-threatening boys. <laughs> I would agree with all of that in, in in more normal times. But I think in this case, like you can tell from the way that Boris Johnson has certain things that he likes to aim at the Labour Party, particularly during PMQs. So the sort of Captain Hindsight label and the carping from the sidelines. I think he said something like that when he was up against Angela Rayner. Well, that was last week. God, time, time in, in COVID. But yes, when he says things like that, I think that there is a reason for it. And it chimes with a lot of the conversations that I had, particularly earlier on during the crisis with care workers and, and others who felt, you know, extremely aggrieved by the situation that they were in and scared and wanted to tell me their story and about the policy failures that they were suffering. But something they would always say would be, you know, I can't really blame anyone in particular because no one saw this coming you know, we've never had to make plans for this kind of thing before. It's really hard to, it's really hard to counter what's going on. It's really hard to come up with, with laws that, that work to try and get us through this. And so I imagine that a Labour Party that 
has a lot of criticism for the way that the government has been doing things rightly and a lot of scrutiny, which I think they've been very good at. But for them only to be doing that without looking like they're coming up with their own solutions. And of course, they, they do have their own they, they do have their own sort of policy preference in terms of the furlough scheme, like you, you like you explained, Stephen. But to look like they don't have any of their own answers, I think, could be a problem for a public that, you know, obviously the polling shows that the attitudes towards the government's coronavirus response are are dipping and becoming more negative. But there is still a bit of forgiveness for how unprecedented the situation is. And there is not that much forgiveness for people who complain without offering anything up in return. It's a bit like the the way that, you know, the public don't really like journalists very much. It's because we're always criticising but never coming up with our, with our own solutions. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Ask Us. Us. And you can tell that Stephen has been on a lot of Labour conference panels with that response, the the pain (laughs) in the voice. (laughs) This is a question from Alex. We're doing something a bit more lighthearted as we head into potentially quite a grim few months. Alex asks, what are you making sure that you have slash have not done before a potential second lockdown? Anoush, what are your plans for lockdown, la nouvelle vague? <laughs> so after the measures kind of loosened a bit, you know, I, I did my bit for stimulating the economy. I ate out to help out quite a few times. You know, I saw friends, I saw family. I did far more socialising and and fun things than I had done in a while. Now that that's all wrapping up, I've realised that I have neglected my garden in that time. So I think I'm going to try and lay the groundwork for for getting the garden back into the shape that I had it during the peak of the virus back in April, which was, you know, very bountiful. Unfortunately, my sweet peas and my French beans have died. So I'm going to try and revive them and maybe plant some things that actually work over autumn or winter. So if any listeners know of what I can plant that might survive, let me know. <laughs> and But I've got more than one olive, so that hasn't oh, been nice. entirely neglected. I've actually got quite a few now. And, and figs too. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to be going back to doing if if we are <laughs> limited in the way that we expect we are going to be. Stephen, what about you? I worry just how much my like hidden personality as someone who's going to die wide just comes out in these segments. But like the main thing I'm trying to do is go to as many restaurants <laughs> as possible. <laughs> Particularly, I'm trying to do like a sort of farewell tour of like the. There are lots of like 
very nice, like small independent or kind of ones where there's like a chain of like two restaurants with the same owner or whatever, or the same sort of trained group of chefs. And I'm, you know, in the kind of Hackney area, I'm sort of trying to see them, you know, one last time because I'm obviously deeply concerned that they won't survive the, I'm also, I'm really glad that I didn't give in to my temptation to make fun of Anoush for her olives and her figs. <laughs> lol. lol. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking like, this is very middle class, isn't it? And I'm like, what I've been doing is, but yes, I, I've, um, you've been eating that produce. <laughs> I've been eating that produce. Yeah. Like I'm hoping it will, it will, you know, it, it's actually the one upside to the deeply grim time we're heading because to my surprise, I actually got thinner in lockdown. But don't worry, I've, I've more than made that made up for that now. So I'm I'm basically taking it like getting my kind of almost my winter hump. So you know we'll go into lockdown, but because I've like tried to go to as many of Eater London's thirty eight essential restaurants before before the hammer comes down, I'll just like live off live off my my blubber. But I hope this week you're replicating the party conference diet of like sweaty wraps and diet coke. So I mean I actually have become like a proper sued with party conference right in the. <laughs> before you go you get you get the like the michelin app out right you work out exactly like where the restaurants within the conferencing you then identify like people who you can semi justify the claim to right so you, you basically need to like have the the, the kind of lion like instinct for the, the ministerial gazelle right someone who'll, who who they'll they'll know they shouldn't spend that long away from the conference center they'll know that maybe their whip will be like we need someone to go on tv but they just want to eat a good meal and you just mm-hmm. need to zero zero in on those people in the weeks before and then take them to like a really nice a really nice restaurant or you kind of claim it's team building was I think the other thing we did last year oh, uh, we did so much team building didn't we we ate very well delicious team building yeah <laughs> in a rooftop restaurant in Manchester <laughs> I mean, like, you know, like we, we you know we, we we became closer right it was a very it was very important right you know we'd only just become a trio it was you know it was, mm. it, was, it, was it was important right yeah and we needed a rooftop and a you know Michelin starred menu to do that I agree yeah and like I feel like you know if if I hadn't taken you both to that restaurant, then you know Patrick would probably have like left for the Times even earlier. So you know, like it, it, that, that's so. This is actually quite similar to my conference experience, to be honest, Anoush, because I'm just really bougie about food. What would be about you, Alva? I completely agree on the restaurant front. Less, I mean, I haven't been, you know, reading off any lists, but before the last lockdown, or I mean, as we've we've talked about a lot on this podcast, people voluntarily were locking down about a full week before the the measures really came in and if you cast your mind back there was a week where we were encouraged to stay at home before Boris Johnson brought in formal lockdown measures so without remembering the timing exactly I think after a week of volunteer of voluntary working from home and basically self-imposed lockdown I thought the whole thing was so scary that my boyfriend and I decided on the Saturday after a week of waiting for you know the destruction of humanity that we should go to Padella which is this um really nice pasta restaurant in London it has a few branches and it always has a very very long queue because it's really really good homemade amazing and we decided that you know given that we were on the verge of the apocalypse there would maybe be no queue at Padella and we were right there wasn't so we went to Padella for pre-lockdown pasta and on our way we went to a bookshop nearby and I bought loads of good books to sort of cheer myself up expecting to be you know hunkered down for ages as I was so I feel like I might try to replicate that and go for pasta and go to a bookshop 
But I think actually my lockdown preparedness has been more comprehensive than anyone's really because I have moved flat in preparation for round two. I'm kind of joking, but also kind of not in that I have moved flat and I've moved south of the river in London and I now live opposite a park and I no longer live effectively above a motorway. So I'm really ready for round two being on a balcony that, you know, won't see me inhaling toxic fumes. <laughs> it's going to be great. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, my colleagues, Anusha Kellyan and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you for listening. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.